Horrific Network Entertainment. another episode of the horrific podcast we have a rad guest for you today we have uh some forthcoming news about the start of campfire chronicles coming and more so stay tuned while coming um megan has been greenlit a sequel already megan 2.0 is said to be coming uh, relatively soon 2025 So they had to have known that they were going to, if this thing was going to succeed, that they had an idea already uh, in the works. Blumhouse, Atomic Monster, and Universal. And it has, and we're getting another one. So stay tuned for that. Uh, I love that movie. All of us, I think, really did actually enjoy that movie um, more than we expected to originally so I'm stoked on it man Halloween Horror Nights we kind of touched on it a little bit uh, the venue in Vegas which is going to be year round it's going to have mazes it's going to have the ability to rotate its material that it's using from along with like eateries and uh, sounds like a themed bar as well I'm just waiting to see how many houses they can have in it and what else is going to be in it. Like how, if it's like two houses or more that are always there, I would say that's worth your time. If you're anywhere within, you know, like driving distance from our house to LA, it would be worth the weekend to go check it out. Um, And that's about a five hour drive. So from our house as well, we can get to Vegas in about six and a half to seven hours. And... it's definitely gonna we're definitely gonna go check it out once whether or not it's like this thing that we go out there multiple times a year for or if we even really need to I don't know how often they're gonna switch their material up Um, I'm really I'm curious but I'm really excited about it man see I definitely don't you know know what to fully expect from the the year-round Halloween Horror Nights thing, but it is an interesting concept. I mean, we play, we have multiple shows, you know, haunt season shows that get produced year-round just based solely on, like, haunted houses and the history of haunted houses that people enjoy, man. So the fact that this thing has, and now haunted houses, it seems like, are becoming bigger things... Um, for you to be able to put together um, with haunted houses based on like Valentine's Day or St. Pat it's becoming a more year round thing and I 
am pretty stoked about that fact. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway, man. Um, the other thing I would like to say with Rochelle Davis being our guest today from The Crow, um, I think that the film in itself is, oops, sorry about that, is, a, you know, one of the most touched on, uh, touched on, um, film franchises for being like cursed or people say that it's you know this has this weird stigma about it Rochelle pretty much puts all that to bed and says you know let's focus on the the positive of Brandon Lee and the positive of uh what is this it's still a beloved franchise so I think that you know Rochelle she was an interesting character um she definitely you know, playing really Brandon Lee's counterpart in The Crow is definitely one of the uh, things that brought the humanity still to The Crow, that brought Eric Draven through even more when you watch that movie. So, yeah, man, I was stoked to get to talk to Rochelle and about her time on set with the people centered around what is... Uh, one of the more iconic films of this day. Alright guys, The Crow is without question one of the most iconic characters, one of the most iconic films I think that uh, has really ever happened in the gothic horror vein. Uh, I think you guys will all agree with me on that, otherwise you wouldn't be in the um, and obviously, the fact, check something real quick there, the fact that uh, this story of Eric Draven and his coming back as the crow to save Sarah, he's almost like a horror fan's Batman, man. Yeah. and uh, that makes this even more pleasurable to introduce our own Rochelle Davis, the Sinister Creature Con. Welcome in. Show. I've done a lot of shows. 
and there's very few, maybe a handful, maybe 10 if I really could think of them, but probably just off the top of my head of things I absolutely could remember really well, maybe five out of the tons I've done over 10 years, whatever, this was one I never forgot. As soon as she was like, sister, I'm like in Sacramento with Brian and Jim. Like I knew exactly, I just remembered, you guys are awesome. So I was happy. Good, it's a good place, right? Yeah. Right? Woo. Thank you. We're in agreement. <laughs> I would say that the first question is a pretty obvious one, but it's a thing that I would love for you to kind of share. And I know this film is so, the reputation of, of Brandon's accident, but it's not even just Brandon's accident. It is a series of things that Absolutely. happened in the making of this film. Mm -hmm. uh, some before, some after his accident, when you guys continue to try to finish it right. in his honor. Right, which is the easiest way to remove this whole idea of this curse. Right. It, it was like, you can blame that on anything. If you have a superstition, you say, well, if I drop this comb under that chair, bad things are gonna happen. Guess what? Quantum physics will tell you that will, because you just manifested it. So that's all superstition is, and I can't. I can't tell you how annoying it gets when people are like, no, it has to be a curse. I'm like, no, it could just be people were overworked and exhausted and couldn't make good decisions on no sleep. <laughs> That's more logical, just saying. For sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there was a lot of mistakes being made. The, the what I was going to really at the, the heart of the question was, I know you and Brandon, obviously, the roles that you played would create a close relationship between the two of you, why you are on set. I know in an article that I read that you had said that the graveyard scene was one of your favorite scenes with him. And I also know that you had said that he didn't like dogs, but you were planning on getting him a dog. But what are some like the fun Brandon Lee stories when he wasn't full character just oh, around? Yeah, I mean, if, if you see the character of Eric Draven, like he's such a cool character because that's super and creative. I mean, it's kind of like Sarah. I'm not Sarah, but I created her. I definitely took what they had in writing and went, this is the girl that says that. And that's what he did, but he did it so much better than me because he was a seasoned professional. I was still just doing plays since I was a kid when I got into you know, doing films. But we had an immediate like chemistry before we worked together. So it wasn't like something we had to learn to develop over time of rehearsing, like when we met, it was almost like I already had known him and he had already known me somehow, but we didn't. And it was, the first time I met him is a good story about Brandon, just to explain how not Eric Draven he was, um, was I was driving through the set. They were just driving me through Carol Go Studios to show me this is the back lot. Here's all the warehouse. That's where they make the food. Here's where the carts are. And we go by the makeup and hair uh, trailers and they go and that's where they do the makeup and hair and as we drive by we're slowly driving by so i can see it brandon turns he's easily 100 200 300 feet i don't know i was 12 at the time but we were on a road big piece of grass and then a trailer very far i couldn't see his face in detail and he sees the car and i guess somebody had said to him oh that's rochelle like seeing the set and all of a sudden i see him going rochelle and i look over and he goes I'm Brandon, nice to meet you. And I went, nice to meet you, I'm Rochelle. And I just kept driving. And it was like, okay, that just happened, whatever. Didn't even know who he was. And so when we met each other, it really felt like we just already kind of knew each other. So it immediately just became this very natural, like, 
older brother, little sister feeling. So as soon as we started actually reading scenes together, it was instant. Like they, you could, it was palpable in yes. the room. And people were like, "How is that?" And we're like, "Because we get along so well." So yeah, I mean, I think that <laughs> you know that that's where that comes from. So that you would describe your relationship with him like brother and sister, because for when he comes back as the crow. You know, he has the whole, you know, the mother's love scene and all that where right. he's trying to talk some sense into you, your mom before it's, you know, too late, so to speak. Right. It's almost like he's coming back as a fatherly figure. Correct. Um, but he's so young, that's the thing. Yeah. The character's so young that even though he's coming back as that protective figure, it's so much more like an older brotherly feeling. Because I've had people, like Ernie Hudson, for instance, he feels like a second father my father passed, and if I thought of anybody that was like my father, I'd say Ernie. Yeah. Because when I see him, he gives me a great big hug, he cares about how I'm doing, we sit and have dinner together. Like, But me and Brandon, we goofed around. We played practical jokes. We traded my Game Boy back and forth to play Tetris. It was like an older brother thing, but like he was so much older. Yeah. You know, it was like having that deep distance in the age with an older sibling. And no, we were not like sister and brother in that real way, but I'm saying in a relationship that you could mimic, that's how close we got in that three months. It was almost like we could have been really. We just acted as if we were, you know, howling around like siblings. Or, right, right. Yeah. Um, but he did take a very protective role. He even said that to me. Like, you know, I really feel like I want to be a parent and you, you know, teach me things that I need to understand about how it works with kids. And, like, you know, they're not, like, out of it. They're, they know what's going on. Right. So that was cool. The <laughs> graveyard scene that you said was your favorite is such an iconic scene. Like from set design to uh, performance. And the set design is very like Burton Batman of that whole yeah. film. The yeah, we were filming in North Carolina. So if it wasn't raining like it wasn't in that scene, the air was cold. It was crisp. So that feeling that you got of almost that cold feeling of that, but like the warmness between us was literally there. We were sitting in the cold, and we rehearsed that scene for about an hour or two prior. Like they didn't even ask the stand-ins to come in because usually they put the stand-ins in, they fix all the lighting, and then we come in and we rehearse. Well, me and Brandon decided ahead of time like it was a big scene, so we're not just going to rehearse for a couple minutes and shoot. Regardless of how many times you film it, it's still, we need to feel like we got it down. So we sat there for like easily two hours. He smoked an entire bag of cigarettes. He had a little pile next to him of just all his little camel lights put out because he knew he couldn't stay on set. He had to collect them and throw them out and get them off the scene. But he would sit there and smoke them and put them in that little pile and we'd go through every motion, like how his hand would reach out, how I'd lean in, how he'd get up on his knee. Like we just played it all out. And by the time we did that rehearsal, we both like looked at each other and we were like, we're gonna nail this. You know, like we were like, yeah, we got, and it was so, like I said, very palpable feelings would come between, you know, the, those good chemistry moments between actors. So like when he and I did that scene, we knew each other at that point well. It was towards, more towards the ending of filming than the beginning. Um, and we had rehearsed it so well that you could feel that energy. And so when I left, every time I walked off the scene, I was actually crying because of the feeling I got from doing the scene with him. And then I'd have to be like, <sighs> and like calm down and they'd redo my makeup a little because it was like dark under the eye. And then 
go back to the scene. So yeah, it was it was the most memorable scene to me, and I think it, it really stuck out to me. I mean, am I wrong? Is that not the the Brandon and Sarah scene that hits everybody? Is that that moment in the you know the the whole thing is the, the one in the loft was and, and and I think even though it's not meant to be seen that it's not him, people could literally feel it yeah. through the screen that that wasn't that moment the graveyard scene was. So. The thing about that, too, is when he passes away, they bring in the double, and it's like, like you just said, you can, and having gone to film school and then re-watching it, right. it's like you can, like, kind of pinpoint when it's him. Exactly, and it's you're not. like, right then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's more about, like, the shot choices when right. it's not him. Right, because you know they're not using his face, specifically, or they're doing fast enough, you can't really zoom in on the thing. Right. Yeah. So, with you guys, after that fact, the decision to continue to finish this thing, was that a, like, collective, everybody was like, we gotta do Yeah, I mean, like, the actors and the crew members, no doubtedly, we all knew Brandon well enough to know that that getting shelved was like, you might as well kill him twice. Like, he was already gone. And this was something he was so passionate about because it was going to push him in the direction and acting where he wanted to go. So that's what he was making his mark that I'm not a martial artist like my, my dad. I can do that, but that's not me. This is, I want to work like character roles. So he put so much of his heart into it that the casting crew was like, you can't, you'll break our hearts. He'll break his heart. And like, he would be destroyed. And we fought so hard. We meetings about it I remember I was 13 12 and I we, all the casting crew would be like at a you know big you know luncher or whatever and we were talking about they cannot do this they can't and then I guess somehow up the chain of command they spoke about it and thought okay well we can shelf it or like we can try to do some honor and I guess with the lawsuit I'm sure too yeah. they felt a little pressure to make something from it and they decided to continue um, which meant a lot got rewritten yeah. but um <laughs> In the end, it worked, and I think Brandon, even if he had seen it after he passed, would still be proud of the work that we put out. I think it's interesting that your grandma was the Greek council. Like that. <laughs> my whole family has issues with being involved too much. My grandmother's a psychologist, my mother's a nurse. So, like, my mom was always like around the medic, like, do you need? I'm like, you're not working the set, stop it. And my grandmother, like, lent her services, I think, at that point, and they just took her up on it because she had it. 30 years experience, yeah. they're like, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's weird that it, that I, I don't want to put any shade on my grandmother because I love her, but it's weird that she was the grief counselor, but I didn't get grief counseling oh, wow. ever from any of my family or at all after the film unless I did it myself. So if I, I find it interesting because they always want to be involved in like in things, but it's not necessarily for but I love her. I, like I say, she has good intentions. I don't think she purposely went out to not give me grief shot. I think she just had a long track mind. I can help here. Yeah. And I did. I got lost in that. Well, you had mentioned talking about you that you started in theater. Two years old, I started in place. And so, what was it that made you transition to film? Was it just like a progressive transition? Or? To me, it wasn't a transition. No. Acting's acting to me. Like, I don't, I mean, there's definitely a difference between the two. Yeah. Um, but to me, I was 
uh, all the work that I did in like this, I did anything involving, like we had a church thing at one point, when I was a religious my family was, that I did plays there, schools, always in drama. Um, I went to camp a few years, drama. I mean, I went down to Miami for about 10 years on and off, and every time I went there to school, I was in a, literally in the School of the Arts. It was Miami was the School of the Arts. Every school had full uh, stage, a full ballet studio, a full recording room for like, you could learn anything you wanted. So I took everything that was creative my entire life. So by the time I was 12, even though it seemed weird, I felt like I'd been preparing for 10 years to get a job. And I was like, what else do I do with this except work? And they're yeah. like, you shouldn't work, you're 12. And I'm like, yeah, but where else am I gonna go with this? Like, I'm just gonna keep doing play after play. Like, I wanna make money. And yeah. to me, it didn't, it wasn't any different except that your rehearsing is before and then you're just repeating and repeating what you do in rehearsal yeah. before you do a play. So it's just backwards, essentially, you know? Yeah, I started drama first, second grade. And so when you say it's definitely different, it's always the appeal of performing in front of people. Mm -hmm was always something that I loved. Right. And so the film, when you make your first film, it's the crew and right. your actors, your cast or whatever, and there's no instant gratification other than like, oh man, that was a great take. Right. Was that a, how long did it take to kind of like get used to, to not having, I guess, the live Like the instant like clapping and right, right. See, that's, I don't, that's something I spoke to somebody at my table today about is like, I never wanted to be an actress because of the fame that would come with it or the clapping. I like the attention for sure. Yeah. But my main goal was to like be true to my creativeness and let that come through however it did. If it made people feel uncomfortable, it did. If it made them feel happy, that's fine. Like they had to take their take from it, but I had to give what I gave. And so, yeah, I don't know. It was just for me, I just, that stuff always just came natural. Like you said how you just loved to do and you just started doing that was it was like not a question for me. My dad said the minute I started talking, I was in full sentences and putting on plays. He's like, it was like you knew you just had to get this out of you. And I was like, yeah, and there was no question. I couldn't it was almost like I couldn't stop myself from doing it. It was like a drug. I'm like, yeah. I'm not whatever. I'm more comfortable in front of all of you than I am in front of one human being. If I'm sitting alone with one person, I'm shaking, I'm nervous, I'm anxious, I'm a mess. You put me in front of a crowd, I feel completely natural. It's bizarre, I don't get it, but it's just what I do. So yeah, it just was like the natural progression in my mind. I was like, might as well start making money. I know a lot of theater people <laughs> that would agree with that that statement though. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's addictive, right? Yeah, yeah. and it's, you could be awkward and like really an introverted person Absolutely. but the second that you step on the stage it becomes something else mm -hmm. and you f it feels so it's almost like a life force that becomes inside you like when you do whatever you do that's a creative outlet whether it's acting or art or whatever once you find that feeling that happens when you're creating and it gets that like energized nothing else is like that and you just chase it you're like i want to feel like that all the time so yeah it was just to me like yeah this is what you do, like, but I know so many people are like, I would never get in front of people. And yeah. I'm like, but yeah, you're good with me alone. Like, I'd be a mess if I didn't know you. Yeah. yeah. So, so tell me more about this dog thing. Like, how, how, first of all, how did you find out that he, 
Brandon didn't like dogs. Okay, well, my mom always had millions of animals. It was ridiculous. We had goats, chickens, peacocks, doves, raccoons, goats. I mean, it was, she was ridiculous. So we also had many dogs and many cats. And so that ended up coming up in a conversation at some point that we had a lot of animals back where she lived. And I didn't live with her at the time, but he said, do you have dogs? <laughs> he said real quick, do you have dogs? And she was and he said, I don't like dogs. <laughs> I, thought, I, I think I laughed at him, and I was like, who doesn't like dogs? Yeah. You know? And that's when I realized that it's like look at things from a little bit different perspective. Not everybody's had your experience. And yeah. he said, because I was attacked by one, so they scared oh, me. Wow. Like, I don't want to be around them. They make me nervous because one bit me, and I didn't like it. And I thought, well, if something bit me, I probably wouldn't like it either. It would be scary to me. But it just became kind of an ongoing joke because we did love dogs, he did not like dogs. And then at one point when he was planning all the wedding stuff, I decided to make a big joke about it and said, hey, Brandon, like, are we gonna get you for your wedding present? And he's like, you wanna tell me? And I'm like, I have to tell you, it's too exciting. He's like, what? And he said, I'm gonna get you a dog. <laughs> and I think he thought that the joke would go like over my head. Little did he know, I have like half my family members are Japanese. So he goes, that's great, I'll walk it. And I went, nice. And he went, you got that? And I said, yeah, walk. Like, to start frying, he goes, oh my god, are you, you're an old soul. And I was like, so I was like, yeah, so I'm going to get you. He's like, all right, cool, I'll walk it. And I was like, all right, that's cool. I would never have gotten the But it was a good joke, so he liked joke too. You mentioned that Ernie was, and still seems like is, like a father figure to you. I, the first time I ever watched The Crow tripped out so hard because I was like, Winston is the chief of police now. What was it like working with him? He was a little different back then than he is now. He's so much more really back. I think he was more like serious and an actor back then, but he was still just as nice. He just was very like, I'm in, I'm doing my job, you know? Yeah. So I always saw him as like, and then somebody had to tell me like, you know, he was a Ghostbuster. And I was like, oh! Now I see him, but like he was always so like that. I was like, oh, I don't, you know, it's just this way. But through time, we kind of developed that. Like it's not, it wasn't like when I met Brandon. Like me and Ernie developed a friendship, and we over time like just got more comfortable with each other. And like our first scene we had to do together, I went to his trailer. He was actually going to be filming the scene in the, in the boxers and the t-shirt, and he was wearing that when I walked in. And I don't, neither of us thought anything about it because we were just going to read lines. But that's how we got kind of comfortable with each other and got to know each other. And at one point, he tried to give me some direction on my lines. And I said, hey, you play the cop, and I'll play the little girl, OK? And he kind of giggled. And I was like, just saying, like, you do that role, and I'll do this one, OK? And he was like, all right. And he was like, but I appreciated that a seasoned actor was like giving me tips, but that wasn't what Alex wanted. He wanted me to do it my way. So I was yeah. like, you do you, I'll do me. And then over time, that became very friendly. Like, especially doing conventions. We wouldn't see each other for years and be like, I miss you. And so yeah, over time, it, like, he became more, more like a happy father figure. How often do you guys get to actually see each other in person? Not very. No, I think the last time I saw a group of them together was, it was about five or six years ago. And that was me, James O'Barr, Byling, Tony Todd and Ernie Hudson. So it was the five of us, which was amazing, because that's like never happens. But that was the first time since 
2011 that I had seen that many, like even close to that many people, it wasn't that many. So it's very rare that you get like all of us together. And when you do, we're a mess. We're all just yeah. like little kids, like, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's good stuff. Vi's character is so encapsulating. Like, she doesn't even talk that much in the movie. She didn't speak English that much. <laughs> <laughs> She'll tell you herself. She barely spoke English when she did that movie. So, but, yeah. Like, she is, like, a really dope. Oh, my God. She's amazing. She's... What, what was she like on set? She was, she, like, what she like now is so much more of her. Because I think back then she was getting used to the culture. She had just, like, kind of been starting her career here. She didn't know a lot of English. She was kind of just easing herself to not, like, to gauge the situation. So she was much more mild and meek and sweet. And, like, she'd giggle and laugh and look at me. And I'd be like, oh, she's sweet. And then I met her years later at a convention. And that chick is wild, you know. <laughs> she is not like that. Like, that's not who she is. Once she realized she could just, like, let loose in America, she let loose, man. She is so much fun. Like, we went to a great party together. I was like, dude, I love you. I was like, I wish we could have out right then. She's like, ah, I was no fun back then. Yeah, she's awesome. You mentioned Tony Todd at that point. He was Candyman, of course. <laughs> yeah. Creepy, creepy character. Yeah. Tony is pretty much, he's just got that iconic voice that yeah, he is. The second that he wants to be scary, he could probably ask you for like a glass of lemonade and it would be terrifying. Yes. So what uh, was he like on set? Uh, funny, funny that you say that because the very first time I met him, I didn't know he was in Candyman. However, I did not watch scary movies as a rule. I just didn't watch them. But my dumb, idiotic, you know, junior high school friends were like, we gotta see Candyman. I was like, fine, let's do it. I go to the theater to see it with them way before I did the crowd, of course, to see it with them, whatever. And I go into the bathroom and they come in the bathroom after and close the light off, say his name three times and run out. And I'm like, ah! <laughs> So I get on set and we're talking for a good five, 10 minutes. We I'm just having a nice talk. Oh, hey, how you doing? Have you done anything else? Is your first one cool? And then at one point he goes, yeah, when I was working on Candyman and I'm standing at the bottom of my staircase that went up to my room and I just started going up the stairs. And he's like, he looked at me and I was like, you were who in Candyman? And he's like, Candyman, and I was like, yo, no. <laughs> and he's like, and he just looked at me and he goes, we've just been talking for like 10 minutes. And I was like, all right, yeah, that's true. Okay, but you scared the crap out of me, dude. Like, I was like, I was about to go in my room right now because I just had flashbacks of my nightmares. But he's completely the opposite. Like, I always call him my gentle giant when I see him. I'm like, give me my gentle giant. Because he just has these big long arms and he squeezes me and he's just lovable and sweet. And I just adore him. He didn't even want to, like, grab me up and kidnap me like you're supposed to because he's just such a nice, sweet guy. But he has the look and the tone to be super scary if yeah. you want him to be, you know? It's awesome. Before we open up to Q&A, I wanted to ask you about, because I know you do quite a bit of like activism work, and uh, I just wanted to hear you talk about that, because you're doing a lot of really cool stuff. I'm trying. I mean, I feel like nothing can consume me. Like, I can't be consumed by my career or, you know, my son or 
you know, friends, anything. Anything you do too much is just over, you know, it's overwhelming and consuming and you have to find a balance for things. So that's what I try to do. Like I never am not active in something that I'm doing, whether it's posting, reading about things, learning about things, talking to people about getting involved, doing my part actually physically, whatever. But that's always a piece because I try to keep that balance. Everything has a place in their life. Um, but that's something I've always been really passionate about since I was a child. My mom was an activist. She was, she taught me about women's rights when I was four years old. And I remember wearing the little pin with the, um, you know, the wire uh, hanger on it, you know, with the X across it, and having to ask her, what does that mean? And she explained, and I was like, oh my gosh. And it just, as you know, as I grew up, I learned more and more about what I cared about. Um, I found out there were people in my life I loved a lot. My, my father, for one, was just completely, he just hated people for no reason, essentially. I mean, you think of any kind of group that you can alienate, and he hated them for that reason alone. It was just ridiculous. And it got to the point where my activism in myself became, if I'm gonna be an activist, if I'm gonna do the things I believe in, it has to reflect in my world, too. And my son, his father's from Guatemala, he was, he didn't speak English when I met him. He got his green card once we got married. Like he worked his way into becoming a citizen. So to me, it's very it's disrespectful for my father to treat my son in a way that he would treat people, you know, different color. And he did. He would call him slang names. He would call his father slang names. And I realized, like, if I was really going to be that activist, I couldn't just avoid it with my dad. Yeah. I had to be that person in my own life. It's like that quote, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. I had to be the change I wanted or it's not going to reflect. So I remember just finally saying to my father, I will not put up with this. If you speak to him that way, I will hang up on you. I will not see you if you're going to, like, you either got to change the way you deal with us or we will not have contact with you. And his way of reacting was to cut me off completely. Oh, wow. And less than a year later, he dropped dead. Wow. Without any notice, like, he just parked out. And people say, well, do you regret it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I love my son more than anything in this world, and I spent 18 years making him the man he is. If I didn't show him what it meant to have boundaries and to be what you expect the world that you want it to be and try to be that change yourself, then you're just talking. You're just saying stuff that means nothing. So I was like, you cannot allow that in your life. I don't care if they're blood. I don't care if they were friends. Never. And he learned that real quick. So we have a rule in our house. If you have that energy or if you have some sort of, you know, thing against any person for any reason other than they treated you bad, you don't belong in our house and you don't walk through our door. And that's that. So what I do on my free time for activism is one thing, but I live it more. I do my research, I talk to people, I learn, I try to like always evolve and grow. And that that's to me what being a real activist is being. It's always growing. For sure. Then that's a good uh, rule to live by what you just said right yeah. now. Absolutely. What goes on in your household. That positive vibe stuff. And exactly. Karma is very, I think, very, very real. Absolutely. And speak on your dad but that says something that the fact that yeah. he was who he was i mean that's the thing is people like to when somebody dies they like to pretend they're not who they were my dad was who he was the fact that he died 
doesn't mean anything except that he died. Every human being on the planet is going to die. But if you were abusive and mean and hateful to people that you were supposed to love unconditionally, yeah. that's pretty shitty. I don't care what else, you know what I mean? So that's just what he was. And the fact that he died doesn't change that he was a jerk, you know what I mean? <laughs> so I, I agree, like, people should not be that way. You know? For sure. Uh, does anybody have a question for Rochelle? Otherwise, I'll keep gathering. I kind of do. Yeah, sure. Oh. I knew you did. I saw you looking. <laughs> uh, it was like, I remember three scenes of in a movie that, you know, you were part of it and it felt like you are very pivotal in, like, developing the movie and pushing the movie forward. Um, one was uh, when Eric saved you. And then there was a rebuild when um, he said, like, it can't rain all the time. And then Start like, yeah, yeah, looking yeah. over, what, where is he? Yeah. And then there was that hot dog scene where you're, I think you're eating a hot dog. Right? I wasn't, then, though. I was a vegetarian. Oh. <laughs> they pushed the hot dog backwards. <laughs> All I did was bun, I swear. It, it was like, you know, you know, it was help pushing his life. You know, you figure out this mystery and everything sort of. And the third one was Anna Thompson when, um, uh, when Eric had him. Right, and she gets up like clear and she was saying you wrecked it so that she was burning everything and then she was gave up and then like the moon city was sitting. Yeah, it's an overeasy mom. Wasn't it a script or overeasy? Yeah, it was overeasy. And then the weird thing is that is how I eat my eggs. They didn't ask me, it was just my line, but I was like, I actually do like my can I eat these now? In the entire movie, whether I was in it or not, or with me? Okay, cool, because I hate when people ask me, I'm like, I don't care as much about my scenes. My, one of my apps, there's two scenes that I kind of go back and forth on which one I love more. I think the one I love the most is the, the Gideon Pawn Shop scene, because oh. some of the stuff he says, just, I laugh so hard. I still, to this day, just can't. I'm like tearing up my eyes laughing. Because, yeah, when he's like, well, when he just does something, warmer? Don't you know this game? And like people miss these little tiny things he says throughout him yeah. running around screaming. But I remember listening to it when I watched it the first time and being like, he is so calm. Like, that's the Brandon I remember, you know? So when he's like, Warmer, don't you know this game? And then he like hangs upside down. He's like, Mr. Gideon, they're not paying attention. You know, it was like, I just love that scene because it really let his, him be him with the makeup still on. Because the only time he really got to feel loose and like be himself more was in the flashback scenes, and you don't really see much of him. It's just like quick little. So he got to do it, but there wasn't much you see in it in the film. So that was like the one time you can see the clash of those, like his funniness and the revenge all coming together. So that was probably my favorite. But second favorite is the tinted one. Oh, the tinted Something about, oh yeah, I love that scene. Which one? I love that the scene. Oh, gets me every time. The look that he gets, because doesn't do it in every encounter with that gang right but those two scenes in particular like yeah. he's got like this kind of like half shitting grin on his face yeah. and it's like <laughs> oh okay so that's that's cool to kind of because we are out of time but that is cool to kind of like end the note that that is the blend of the crow and the real brandon yeah movie. absolutely yeah that would be that would be my best description of like, yeah, that was his personality. And believe me, he had an angry spot, but it was very hard to reach. 
It was just, you had to be disrespectful to women or, you know, disrespectful of somebody for no apparent reason. And he would, but that was the only time you would see that side of him. And even that was very calm and collected. He would just be like, I'm not dealing with this. I'll be out there, you know? And it was just clear, like nobody doesn't get along with him. If he has a problem with something, you're doing something wrong. So yeah, he was just an incredibly fun and just lively, enjoyable person to be around. And he made that, he made everything about that movie just perfect. Well, I will definitely say the same for you. You have been thank an you. incredible, fun, and lively person to be around in this panel. And I thank you for coming and joining us. Oh, Absolutely. we have one, yeah, we do have time. You have yes. one more question? What about the kitty? Oh, God, she's beautiful. Oh, you said your family was super involved with your grandma my mom did. Your mama? Yeah. Whose kitty was that? The cat. Oh, actually, that's funny. Um, we had about five to seven of them that looked identical. Yeah, cats don't bathe. Do you think they're going to do what you tell them? Do they do what you tell them to at home? Because mine doesn't. Like, in the hot dog stand scene where the cat's there, it was tied down with a cable so it couldn't get up. Like, there was something harmful to it. It just knew it couldn't stand up because there was a ring around it. But yeah, they don't behave, but one of those five cats was actually James O'Barr's cat, Gabriel. He actually was in the film. That's who he named him after, that's what he looked like after, and he actually owned a white cat named Gabriel that was on set. So some of those are Gabriel. <laughs> and James O'Barr's in it. And there you go, man. There was our interview with Rochelle. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope that you guys are able to check out. So this week we have coming up a new podcast that kind of consolidates all of the year-round HHN stuff uh, as far as like the park proper, whether it be playing a demo, any of that kind of stuff. We've all kind of jumbled that into Cyber Horror Nights, a new podcast we will be debuting that with a Horror Night style event in which I kind of built as a playlist. I play it virtually uh, on the Oculus Quest. There is a playlist if you want to play along with us. Anytime that we're doing one of those, you can absolutely do that. But we will be doing uh, more uh, writing with Horrific and that kind of stuff as well. So stay tuned for that and thank you for listening. May the stars light your way throughout all your journeys. May the stars light your way throughout all your days. May you see all the world's systems, stars, and planets. May the stars light your way and see you safely home.